Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets, up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. This is DeRay. Welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Miles, and Don talking about some of the big issues that have been happening in politics in the past week. And then I sit down with Daria Dawson, the National Political Director of America Votes, an organization centered on fostering a culture of strong civic participation, voter engagement, and mobilization, and advocating for fair, modern elections. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this new episode of Pod Save the People. I am Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok at Feral Rapture. Don Calloway, Washington, D.C. You can find me on Instagram at D Calloway, on Twitter at DCSTLAGAIN. DCSTL again. This is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. So you all, I've been getting my, my my CNN on, and I understand that the Speaker of the House moment is big. We have um, Kevin McCarthy, all these names. Can you, I, I, I've been waiting for this moment for y'all to hit me to what's going on, so I'm not just filled my cranium with Sexy Red and Will Smith and Jada. So what's happening? Where's the government go? What's going on with the government? What's happening with the Speaker of the House? Let me know, y'all. I think that's my cue, Brother Miles. So here's, I, I will do my best. And and to be honest, I'm far less interested in like the day-to-day horse race of politics these days. And I'm far more interested in like big picture context. How do we get here? And what does this mean for the future in terms of culture shifts? But here's what I will tell you. As of right now, the Republican Party in the House, uh, which has the majority, is essentially rudderless. It's leaderless. Since they ousted Kevin McCarthy, uh, two weeks ago by uh, actions of Matt Gates, the, the legislative terrorist, they have been looking for a suitable leader. I think now three have tried, three have failed, and it is not clear that the fourth potential speaker replacement, Jim Jordan, will have enough votes from his caucus when they return to D.C. today to become elected speaker when they take it to a floor vote. Uh, so Jim Jordan, as we all know, is probably Trump's most notable ally in the legislature. Um, is from Ohio, is uh, not prone to wearing a full suit. You always see him in just a shirt with a tie looking like the high school wrestling teacher that he is. And it's important to note that Jim Jordan was an assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State when they had a decades-long, excuse me, a 10-year-long a wrestler molestation scandal. And Jim Jordan was in a position of authority and did not report it. I mean, this is well-known. His, his athletes have come out, Division One athletes, Manly men who've come out and said that they were molested and Jim Jordan knew about it and did nothing. And we've seen this case in Michigan State and, you know, Larry Nasser. This is no different just in the case of 
young male wrestlers. So Jim Jordan is kind of a POS to begin with long before his pro-Trump advocacy. Uh, somehow, some way, he is the guy that House Republicans have decided should be their standard bearer. But there are a few sensible Republicans that are still holding out at this moment. We don't know who they are yet because these have all been kind of in caucus discussions. But it is, however, not clear that Jim Jordan will be able to lose. He will be able to get the four or five Republican votes he needs uh, to secure 217. And Democrats, for their sake, are using this as an opportunity to extract some concessions. They don't want to vote for Jordan. They will vote for a more moderate Republican because they know they don't have the majority in exchange for certain concessions that make it easier to get Democratic principles into the legislative process. So there's a lot of horse trading going on right now. But the big picture is this. In 2010, when the National Republican Party started making space for and allowing some of these crazies, whether you call them the, the Freedom Caucus, which they evolved into, or the Tea Party or whatever, we saw crazy elements. And if you're watching this, you know that when you invite crazy into the tent, it's just a matter of time until these people will eat their own. And you saw President Trump from that. You see a Jim Jordan from that. And the big picture, if Americans want to feel comfortable about where we are right now, is remember, that the speaker's race will not determine anything regarding Senate dynamics. It will not determine anything regarding the White House. And adults are still in certain spaces because of our multi-tiered system of checks and balances. But it does appear that one of the worst legislators, one of the true crazies, is on the precipice of becoming Speaker of the House. And that's unprecedented and just another feather in the cap of the craziness of the modern-day Republican Party. Was Trump the door open for this? Because I felt like it used to be you have to have some kind of decorum, and and, and now it just feels like it's getting wilder and wilder. Is, was, is it illusionary that Trump was the start of this, or was it always kind of like this, and now we're just watching it because Trump's presidency made us kind of like hyper-focused in the Republican Party? Yeah, Trump, Trump definitely wasn't the start of it. I mean, if you think about it, the modern day craziness or idiocy, if you will, is a result of a knee jerk and visceral reaction to the election of a black president. And you started getting these far right elements in who were willing to say basically never again. We will never again allow a black person and all the people that comes with that black president. Remember, a president is an administration. Administration is more than a president, right? right and so right. it's about all the secretaries and all the government workers and all the people who will execute on this agenda being diverse and being reflective of an inclusive America. And Jim Jordan is representative of an element that grew from that time saying, no, never, not again. And Trump was, you know, an avatar for that movement, but he certainly wasn't the start of it. Uh, and the problem with Trump is that you get bad Trump imitators all throughout government. And you see them now rising to be Speaker of the House. But imagine what this means for small town school boards. Imagine what this means for small town community zoning boards in which they only know to come in, talk racist, talk homophobic, be crazy, and hold up things, right? That is their operating philosophy of government. And, you know, it's kind of depressing to consider that you'll see that on every level of government. But we all need to recognize that it certainly was not, uh, it did not start with Trump. Don, though, so... The we're not completely out of the clear of a shutdown, right? Like they only they only passed like a 40 day something, 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 right? Yeah, they, they passed a 40 day continuing resolution, which means that we're funding government for the next 45 days. Yeah. So we missed that kind of deadline. We were all watching the clock there. We got about 45 days to come to some type of consensus. And, and you are correct to point out that having a Speaker of the House is critical to that. 
But if they don't, if we don't have a Speaker of the House, can they still extend it again? Or are we like legitimately screwed? And is it, you know, I've been meaning, I'm happy we're having this conversation because I've seen online at least people talk about Hakeem Jeffrey, like, you know, some defectors, some of the sane are Republicans defecting. Is that a real thing? Or is that like a pie in the sky thing that is never going to happen, but we should keep talking about it because it is the right talking point? What's up? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the questions in reverse. Hakeem Jeffries is not going to be speaker. Hakeem Jeffries knows that, and he's doing what he can do right now to extract concessions to make Democratic legislation easier. But he knows he's not going to be speaker. The, the really the, the way out of this is to find a reasonable Republican. Right now, I think it's a gentleman out of uh, Louisiana, goes by the name of Austin, and I think his politics are probably abhorrent to everybody. Uh, you know, under the sound of our voices. But he is not Jim Jordan. Right. So that's kind of where there are is like we are going to have a really, really, really conservative leader who's not a member of the Freedom Caucus or legislative arsonist. Uh, so Hakeem Jeffries knows he's not going to be speaker. Yes, we still need a speaker of some sort to pass another continuing resolution to fund the government. Um, and, you know, they'll come to it in some form over the next week. Maybe it might take another two weeks. We will have a speaker. But the question is, what kind of damage will be done to the leadership image of Republican the Republican Party as adults who are able to govern themselves and present an agenda for the whole country? Got it. Well, it'll be, you know, this, the news cycle has been just so wild that it feels like the shutdown was the number one conversation that it was McCarthy resigned. Now that random guy is the speaker pro Tim or something like that. Um, kick Nancy Pelosi out the office. Y'all are like, y'all are just doing everything but governing. Oh, and then George Santos. Oh, Miles, did you see this? Miles, did you see George Santos carry the baby outside yeah, the office? I, f- 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 so first of all, I don't know what the like the actual official tissue like declaration of his sexuality and his gender expression, his community is, but I know a sister when I see a sister. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I didn't, I never got into like that. I was like, oh, wow, they really diversity points. They really got one of us to totally trade in. It looks so ridiculous. I had to, we, we've been binging dynasty and i saw that clip and it was so hard to differentiate the drama the melodrama that was happening there from me binging 80s dynasty episodes like what was going on like the bait the boulder the boulder i believe is her name uh when she performs in drag <laughs> uh, yeah what 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 was the whole bait like yes i did have a baby like i it's it's not mine yet what is what was that there was no statement about the baby that's what makes it even wilder <laughs> i was sure that i just missed it i was like oh, i'm he sure he said it's not mine yet or something like that but there was no like actual statement about the baby and you're like what it is mind you people's lives are at stake here and it's just like lottie die happening in congress on the right but not not totally removed from if you remember about a year ago, all the buzz on the hill was about Matt Gates, who had a son slash lover uh, of who was a, a a of Latino immigration status of some sort, uh, and he he was nineteen, twenty, twenty one years old, but he called him his son at other times. But other people would see him making out in the Capitol Hill area, you know, just. A lot of weird craziness happening over there on the Republican side. And they're trying to throw Matt Gates under the bus now. And you're like, he was fine with y'all up until this. Come on. Now, y'all can't be mm-hmm. the arbiters of morality when he was your guy up until he forced Kevin McCarthy out. And Kevin McCarthy sucks. So, like, you know, there's that. <laughs> um, and I'm happy that that guy lost something because he was smug and 
uh, he was a liar and talked out of both sides of his mouth and like all those things. Um, but it is really wild to think like that is the best of the government right now is these That's wild. bozos. That's wild. So we're going to go to Israel and Palestine and talk about what's going on there. DeRay, I'm very interested in hearing um, what your opinions are on what's going on. And then obviously I love your opinions, but also I think you're so good at like, what can we do? Because the news is is loud. Everything's loud. I'm so interested in, in you kind of guiding some people on what is the safest thing to do with your mind. <laughs> and this moment was the safest thing, the direction to where to go, because there's so much information and there's so many kind of forces making you really want to pick a side. Let me just say that it has been really interesting to see this conversation both unfold and evolve. So like all of you, I remember hearing the initial reports about Hamas's attack on Israel, uh, the people at the concert being killed and slaughtered and uh, the biggest loss of life in Israel from an attack since the creation of the of the state of Israel. And as just a full stop statement, there's no way to condone that. That is wrong. There is no way you justify, I think, uh, you know, killing people at a concert like that. Like there's, and I think that the, the initial, that was the whole first conversation and that makes sense to me. And then Israel responded. And you're like, okay, I, it makes sense that there'd be a response, right? That like, you would be like, who killed all these people in our country? And I actually know a lot of people who, you know, saw it, didn't really know anything about Israel, Palestine, but were like, okay, we can't have people just blowing up people at the concert and that'd be a response. And then the response was just so wild. I, you know, cutting off water, electricity to all of Palestine, telling a million people they need to evacuate in 24 hours or or a little bit more potentially, but knowing that there's no actual way to evacuate and the best evacuation is to go to Egypt, but they close the border. Tons of kids being killed. And I saw the conversation very quickly coalesce around people being like, hey, I don't know everything, but genocide is wrong, full stop. No matter who does it, no matter the reason people have, no matter how right they think they are, like we cannot support genocide. That is like a, it just is a hard line. You want to figure out what's going on with Hamas? Okay, can't support genocide. And it it still has been pretty wild to see people sort of shimmy this idea that you can't support genocide as in like the total destruction of Palestine itself and the people therein um, with some sort of critique of all of Judaism, because it is not that. And that is, you know, I just want to name that because I've seen that happen online. I've, um, I've experienced that. So that's like my framing for this. Now, what I understand as well is that all of us were, you know, aware when 9-11 happened. And I do think there's something about the shock of events like this that really does just completely and totally shape your mind. That like the surprise, the shock, the rage, 
And it is hard to talk to people when they are shocked, enraged. Oh, like I was one of the, like I remember 9-11. I remember the announcement on the, um, I remember where I was. I remember the announcement. I was in school. I remember my principal's daughter was in one of the buildings. And there is only one response that people have when that happens to them. They're like, oh no, we gotta. And and I, I actually understand like that moment because we lived it, right? And we were wrong in Afghanistan. That was wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like we, 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 some people said it then. Everybody needs to say it now. We were wrong in Iraq. We killed so many. That was the wrong thing to do. America is wrong about a lot of these things. And I think it is consistent to say that then. It's consistent to say that like genocide is just a bad thing. Third thing I'll say is that this moment has pushed a lot of people to start to learn about the creation of the state of Israel, the historical resistance of, of Palestine, like all of those things we should be talking about more than we have. And Miles, I'm sure you'll bring up, but like there's been a long line of Black activists, Black writers, Black thinkers who have noted the Palestinian question as a defining question of generations. And I'm interested in that conversation happening. Yeah, that's those are my like initial thoughts. Absolutely love those thoughts. Yeah, like you said, that that is just in my blood. My great grandmother, or she's not my great grandmother. My <laughs> my grandmother would kill me if she, she heard me say that. Um, my grandmother was in the Black Panther Party. My mother went to the Black Panther, um, you know, school in Bed Stuy. Um, shout out to you, Furu. Um, so this is a conversation that's been in my household my whole life, you know, and it has been something that we've talked about my whole life, even though it wasn't always the hot subject matter in mainstream politics. And it goes beyond saying that violence and that brutality is horrific. But as somebody who's lived in Black communities, and as somebody who has been friends with people who have been in jail, who has family members with people who've been in jail, who have arrived at heinous, brutal conclusions of how they're going to navigate this life, I do understand how somebody can be oppressed for decades, in silence for decades, and left out of their, and, and kicked out of their home for decades, and how they arrive at brutal, desperate conclusions, because settler colonialism makes you arrive at brutal conclusions. And it upsets me that I see so many people taking the side or trying to take a side in something that there's no, there's really no side on. It's, it's, it's a horrible situation. And if you know the root of it, AKA Israel went in and, 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 and took, took this and took this land. And that has been the constant struggle. It's hard to not want to be a giraffe and look at the bigger picture of this of this situation. And I think that I love that you mentioned 9-11 and these other moments that happened in America, because I do think there were a lot of Black people that said, I get how come there are people around the globe who do not like America. I get how there are people who are around the globe who don't find the sanctity or the holiness of, of, of America right and want to do things. And I think it's a part of sometimes our arrogance and in and, and our colonial brainwashing that we think that you will go to somebody's land, take it, deprive them of resources and brutalize them. And then there would just be, no, and then the response to that will just be, you know, centuries of peace. It baffles me. And I was watching YouTube. <laughs> and when I was watching YouTube, I saw an infomercial for Israel. If, if, this, if, if you're picking a side in this moment, I think that you already are not seeing the bigger picture. But then if you're picking the side of the 
people or the government, I should say, not the people, but the government who's able to put out infomercials just less than a week after an attack, I would I would investigate why you're on that side. To me, for different reasons, this still becomes one of the subject matters of our generation because Israel has the 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 American propaganda thing on on their side. And you see a lot of people failing to really think critically and globally about why this event happened. So again, to me it feels obvious, but just to reiterate, brutality and violence is wrong. But just like in riots, just like in moments of desperation that I've witnessed in like my own communities that I grew up in, I know that usually those moments of physical, intimate, personal violence and brutality you have a political root. And it makes me sad that a lot of people who are supposed to be like kind of our shining lights during political moments don't necessarily lead us back there because they're afraid of, maybe rightfully so, maybe of their own safety or maybe just because they're afraid of their brands being wavered or whatever. But it it, it, it kind of feels like I'm in a Twilight Zone episode where, where I'm like, if you, we just open our books... <laughs> We will see that there's been a continuous silent war that's been happening, and now we're able to brand this attack in order to get as many people to be okay with the brutality that Israel has already probably has already planned to do for Palestine, who's already wanted to do this. Just needed an ex- just really needed an excuse, and that's my true to blue opinion on everything that's going on. Like Dere said, the radicalblackfeminist.com uh, has put out a reader list of people like uh, Toni Morrison, June Jordan, James Baldwin, um, all um, Malcolm X, all these people who have actually talked about, Nikki Giovanni, who have actually talked about uh, this struggle. And I just beg people, no matter where you fall, to read more about it, to read all sides ab- about it, but then also remember, specifically if you're a marginalized person, where you fall in the struggle and, and, and try as much as you can, put your empathy there too. You know, the the only other thing I'll double click on that you just said is that um, when I think about 9-11, the other thing that reminds me of is part of the shock was that this wasn't soldiers fighting each other. It was people who flew a plane into a white collar office building and then did it again. And then the Pentagon. And then that, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't soldiers on a battlefield in the middle of nowhere, duking it out for two countries. It was bringing this to the middle of New York City. And like all of us remember the, I mean, that was a wild moment. And the American response was wild too. I mean, it was just, it was a moment. And in that vein, this, 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 the, the chaotic conversation about this actually makes total sense to me. Um, and when you said, like, we understand the frustration, I do think there's something about, and I didn't get this until I became an adult, you know, I was sort of taught that America was right, right? That, like, we sort of were the peacekeepers in the world, and we went around, and we helped people figure it out, and we were the arbiters of democracy. And you're like, well, you know, some people think that. A lot of people don't think that. You know what I mean? A lot of people have a different understanding about the American involvement in foreign politics, Um, And you don't have to condone people's behavior to understand that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The more that we put work into understanding an entire situation, because I think that is the biggest privilege of being an American, is that 
we got time to read Israel, we have time to read Palestine literature, and we have time to kind of analyze the cultural moment and see the infomercials and be critical of which um, stations are saying what. We really have time to really... We do, we do actually have more time than we than, than we project about really sitting down and and, and, and and thinking for ourselves when it comes to this. And thinking for yourself just cannot come from the media cycle and what they want you to believe because it's UK and it's Germany and it's and it's America and that and, th- and those places do not have good reputations when it comes to settler colonial histories and 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 their intentions when it comes to doing certain things. And if you find yourself rallying for that same side, it, it, it's worth look, taking a critical look of, of, of have you been got? <laughs> have, you, have you been politically influenced to take a side of the colonizers so you can be quiet during, during, during these moments? This is not a new thing. It's just our thing, you know? And I think that we have to stay critical when it's our thing. Ultimately, I think it's important to remember that Palestine is not Hamas and Hezbollah. And Hamas and Hezbollah are not the people of Palestine. That's one truth. Another truth is that we can stand with Israel and saying they deserve to live in peace in some land and not be exterminated. And you can never forget, as no pun intended, they always say never forget, in their lifetimes, their entire ethnicity was almost destroyed, wiped from the face of the earth. So they are correct to be extremely heightened about anti-Semitic talk, which leads to deeds, which, you know, is not disconnected from terroristic action from Hamas and Hezbollah that has lasted generations now. Um, But again, Hamas is not Palestine and Palestinians are not Hamas and Hezbollah. They also have some right to their ancestral homeland and to live in peace therein. It is not new, uh, Miles, as you brought up your your ancestral history. Um, It is not new for Black thoughtful intellects to have studied the Palestinian conflict. It is not new for thoughtful Black people who are fighting for liberation to align themselves with a greater global struggle for human rights, in which Black people are typically the ones catching the short end of that stick. And in the Middle Eastern conflict, the side that Black liberationists would identify with, not side with, but certainly identify with, is the Palestinians. Uh, And so it is not not foreign or anti-Semitic to have some sympathies with not Hamas and Hezbollah, but with oppressed people who happen to be brown in a certain region. Uh, and, 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 and the Palestinians of Gaza have for generations been at this point an oppressed people. Um, and they are oppressed with the assistance of larger European and white American colonial governments across the board. There's no disputing that. And, you know, I don't claim to be an expert in this conflict, which is thousands of years old. I don't know who's right or who's wrong. I do know that Israelis are right to be heightened because, again, there are people still living who saw their entire families and their entire ethnicity wiped out. And we could not imagine that type of pain, even with the legacy of slavery, because we were not right there having seen that in a way that many Jews were. Um, But that does not give them 
the right to systematically and intentionally oppress an entire nation of people uh, and conflate them with the fundamentalist terrorist elements that do exist in Palestinian culture and in the Palestinian milieu. Um, and what troubles me most, and this is just keeping it in, uh, entirely 1000 with you all, what troubles me the most is the notion of even hinting at perhaps there is something other than just a 100% there's no two sides pro-Israel is cancelable, right? Just the notion that the idea of let's have a thoughtful discussion about this in which we recognize Palestinian humanity is cancelable because that is not anti-Semitic. To recognize the humanity of every group is not anti-Semitic and it is not to side with Hamas and Hezbollah. And uh, yeah, it, it really worries me how we're framing the public dialogue around this because of what voices are being allowed to speak and what voices are being discouraged from speaking. But most importantly, what voices are being punished for even touching upon something that is not completely pro-Zionist. And we know this, right? We know this in our circles. We um uh, at least I do. So I'm in a, in a, I'm in a lot of um, cultural, communal, identity-based circles. So we, so I'm very. I couldn't tell you how many times I had to have this conversation, talking out my neck, sounding like my mother to somebody who's trying to weaponize their transness, their blackness, um, their disability, or their poverty in order to silence somebody who has a critique or has an expansive idea. So we know that's right. So I like. There, there is, no, there is nothing. I, I don't even feel the need to say this, but I will. There's nothing in me that that is um, hateful towards any race of people because of their race or even because of their political their their political sides. There's nothing in that in me when it becomes anti-Semitic. But what I do notice is when people have critical thoughts that are based in literature, that are based in well-thought-out ideas, that are not just somebody talking out of their, you know, you know what, Kanye, and not just ta- and not just talking out of their hatefulness, um, Elijah Muhammad, but they have critical ideas about what's happening and have critical ideas about Southern colonialism, no matter what race you are. That that's not that that it doesn't matter if you're a Jewish settled colonial colonialist. It doesn't matter if you're a black one. It doesn't matter if you're a gay one, a trans one, an American one, or a glo- whatever the case might be. We're not for that, and there's no race that you can be where we're not going to articulate not being for that. That is what's scary about they're they're not being a, being able to be a breath of voices and opinions that talk about this subject matter. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. 
Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. ATLP.com slash people. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local Tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. On a much lighter note, and hopefully I'll be the lightest of this note, we're about to talk about working out. <laughs> and that has been my um my 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 big thing. I've had so many struggles. DeRay has been around me um up and down with my weight because of um mental issues and, and different different um medications I've used that like are for anxiety, but they made me gain weight. And I've always just kind of had this internal struggle with gym culture and had this internal struggle with j- just how just just how because of the social media age it used to be that gym culture and fitness culture was something that happened for two hours on saturday or happened um sorry r.i.p susan summers but 
Susan Summers and Jane Fonda when they were trying to revive their career. And now, because we all have access to our phones, everybody's posting their diets. Everybody's trying to um, show pictures of them in, 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 uh, in the gym and their workout journey. So it feels like gym and fitness culture has actually taken over our media diets in a way that I don't that I think there's a lot of people who are being really critical of, and I'm one of those people. And as somebody who's been like, oh, I want to gain control back over my body, and I love how I feel when I work out and when I dance and and when I eat well, but also I don't want to feed into something. So I've been doing some, just me being me, I do some studying (laughs) around where did this come from? How did this happen? And there's this salon article that I found really... um, really, really interesting that connects neoliberalism, our individualism to the heightened uh, experience that we have with gym culture and fitness culture. So quoted in the Salon articles, it says, the last half century may be considered the age of fitness and it is no accident that this coincides with the age of neoliberalism. Rather than generalizing call to arms, here neoliberalism denotes an epoch that has modeled itself on the market, interprets every situation as a competitive struggle and enjoins people to make productive use of their freedom. So I loved how this Salon article frames our obsession with fitness, our obsession with health, and our turning it into brands and businesses as a way of feeling political, social political control. And it's something to be, and it's so easy because we're trained to be obsessive about it. I thought this felt very freeing and also made me feel like I was right in my mind. There's another video by the um, YouTuber intellect, um, James Somerton from C- Canada, who I think is a like really brilliant person, who actually does the cultural connection of what we now see as um, modern fitness culture with its its roots in um, Nazi Germany and, and um, Nazi propaganda and the kind of bodies that um, Hitler thought were the most desirable and how American soldiers looked to compete with those things and how then during the 1950s because um, when Hollywood excuse me not the 1950s show I wasn't there but (laughs) but during the the, the 1930s and 40s that we start seeing um, Hollywood endorsing these um, uh, these uh, body figures and we start seeing a commercialization of this idealistic body the video is almost two hours this salon article is not the shortest one either but I would really really want everybody, specifically privileged, economically and privileged Americans, to really think about what they're throwing out there, even if it feels harmless. Because right now, even though we're all one cell that's a part of American media, we all are selling in in, in, in American media. So me just following Don... My Don my, my Don might be my only access to straight black male culture, right? So if he's only showing himself working out and 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 doing certain things, it creates this environment around bodies that really empowers the idea that there's one body to have and there's only one way to be healthy and there's only one right healthy body, and that is a symptom of body fascism. So even as I'm on my own way of figuring out what's healthy for my body and with my diet. I have to be very critical about not recreating those things as I lose weight, as I look healthier, as I, as um, as you know, you feel sexy too, and you just want to you know show it off. Making sure that you're not adding to the pool of body um, that that what's called in James Samerton's um, video body fascism, where we kind of say one body's the healthy one, and all of them are, and everything else is. Uh, 
is, is for not. Everything else is unhealthy. Everything else is not just unhealthy, but undesirable, ugly, and shouldn't be looked at. And we know for sure that that doesn't work about, around Black people. As somebody whose whole matriarchal side is is big people who are living into 90, we know that there's probably something going on in, in, in people's uh in people's lives and DNA and cultures that makes us not all identical uh, matches when it comes to fitness. And I thought that was an interesting thing because y- we're, y- you know, DeRay's, DeRay's, um, fit, fit God, <laughs> but not, but not, but not, but not, a, not, a annoying, uh, gay man body fascist but like but like it's just a fit god and i think we all like love health and stuff and i thought this was a really interesting challenge around how we share our journeys how we share our relationships with our bodies and our health in a way that does not continue oppressive ideologies that really are rooted in i don't want to say just rooted in nazi germany but that's where it came from (laughs) just rooted in the in the worst of our past miles i'm happy this really gave me um language because I remember when I restarted, so I've probably been going to the gym consistently for a little bit over a year now. And this is probably my third attempt. I did it during COVID a little bit. That was a huge fail. And then I did it a little bit after COVID with trainers. And I just like couldn't, I just couldn't get it. I was like, either the trainers were like trying to make me be some Avenger on day one. It just was like too much. And then this time I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it and I'm going to put some rules in place. I was like, no powders. Like, I'm not making smoothies every day. I'm not doing that. So I'm not doing that. And then I just need to feel successful every day. Like, that was my goal. I'm going to go for an hour a day. I want to feel successful. I was like, I'm not taking body photos. So I'm not doing any before and after. Like, not a thing I'm going to participate in. And for the first four months, I had no strength. I was like, you know. 15 pound dumbbells, 25 pound dumbbells, which was fine for me. And I was like, well, since I don't feel successful necessarily with the weights, I'm going to be cute. So I like have the coolest gym clothes because I was like, I could do that every day. Like whether, whether I can lift a single thing or not, be cute in the gym, I could do that. And that like got me through it. And it's cool. And now I'm stronger, blah, 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 blah. But it was really important this to go around to do it in my on my own terms and for my own reasons. And people have asked me, like, do you have before and after photos? Did, and I'm like, I actually don't. I didn't even, I don't even have them on my phone. I didn't, I never took, like, so you can, you know, I post it every day as like accountability. And I will say the proudest I've been is people being like, oh, I go to the gym now because I saw you do it slow and methodically. And it's like, yeah, I really did just like go in and was like, oh, I hope I, hope I can do it. And any day where I like sort of sucked at it, I was like, I'll be back tomorrow. Now, what, what sort of touch, what the article touch upon that what, my first thought when I did mine is how much class plays into fitness is that being able to afford a gym that is packed, being able to, like I had to eat my body weight and protein. That's a lot of food. Like that's a lot of something to get to 150 grams of protein every day. Like it actually reminded me of how class is so much a part of fitness in a way that you, that I didn't understand until I started to work out on a consistent basis. And the third thing I'll say is thank God I have a healthy body image already. And I love, there were black organizers who would always say, that body got me here. Like there's a, a, this body sustained me for a long, like way before I ever got to a gym, this body loved me and took care of me. And I'm like, I love that. That's like the most beautiful organizer thing. And it's like, because of the Instagram algorithm, because I look up work workouts and stuff, my explore page is just chiseled guys some days. And I'm like, whoo, thank God I don't really have body dysmorphia because that is a, cr- I look at a lot of things on Instagram, not just fitness. But because of the way the algorithm works, like if I didn't know any better, I would think that everybody was like this eight pack, 
you know, and it's like, that is, thank God I like came to this differently, but it is like a thing. So I'm happy you brought this here. You know, there are, for me, three different stops on this intellectual line of thought. And the first one is aesthetics. The second one is fitness. And the third one is health. And these are three dramatically different concepts. And to be clear, aesthetics matters the least because aesthetics is whether or not it's defined by Nazi Germany is defined by an unreachable standard that men or women shouldn't be trying to aspire to. Right. And it bothers me to see my almost 15 year old, you know, in our gym downstairs trying to he's doing this for aesthetics. At 44, I have gratefully reached the point where, yeah, I'm looking up workouts on Instagram, but I'm no longer trying to look like, you know, Simeon Panda or whatever these, you know, say like that's no longer reachable for me. So I'm doing it to remain fit. And thank God thus far, I'm I'm still fit, right? But ultimately, one can be fit and really not be healthy. What are you eating? Are your arteries clogged up? Are you smoking? How is your lung capacity? All of that stuff goes into health. And health, uh, Miles, if it be any encouragement to you, is number one, the most important thing. And number two, the most diametrically opposed from aesthetics because you can't always see health, right? And by the way, this includes mental health. And a big part of why we should be working out is to sustain and maintain our mental health as well. So if you look at it along those three things, yeah, aesthetics is cool, right? It's cool to be, you know, beach body, but that's actually probably the least important aspect of all of this. Fitness is fun because you want to be fit and have a functional body. I want to be able to be walk up these stairs. I want to be able to walk around Brooklyn one day with my partner and not get winded. Fitness is important, but ultimately health is what's most important. And that aspect is not only underemphasized, but it's really not discussed at all when you're talking about this really corrosive gym culture. I, I love that. So, Don, I have another question that's kind of personal, Barbara Walter style. So I feel like <laughs> we don't necessarily always hear about straight Black men's um, insecurities with their bodies. Did you have any type of journey? You don't have to, obviously, you don't have to go into details, but was that ever a struggle for you? Because sometimes it could just seem like Black men are just like born desirable, straight Black men are born desirable, and come here, ladies, did you ever have some insecurities around body that was... Okay. I've ever looked in a way that is quote unquote undesirable, right? But you're still holding yourself to an unreachable standard. So you cannot feel happy in your own bodily aesthetics, even if you're fit, even if you're healthy, because you're searching for the least, the least of the importance, which is a, a certain aesthetic, right? The six pack with the whole symmetrical everything. And, you know, hey, listen, you know, I haven't done bad. But I'm not, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not DeRay at this point. I look at his workout posts every day and I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Right. But, but that's not what I'm searching for. But let, yeah, I mean, look, from 13 to, you know, 30, when, when, when the, the, the standard is uh, AC Slater, right, uh, dating myself, but it is what it is. The standard is, you know, Odell Beckham. No, you're not that. And I think it's important for straight black boys to understand that you're still beautiful if you're not that. 
and don't kill yourself or hurt others trying to pursue that, right? Because that's just as unreachable as the Barbie standard or the hourglass standard uh, for women. I will say this makes me think of two things. One is I didn't know anything on steroids before I started going to the gym. And I look at some of these guys, I'm like, oh, that's not like, no, I could go to the gym 20 hours a day and I'll never That's right. Like that. That's not doable. That You can't get that. that. That's not natural. That's right. But yeah, I can't get it this way. Right. So like that really helped me also. Like I didn't, I didn't have body goals when I started. I literally was like, I'm going to go every day and like try and see what I can do with my body. The second thing is now, because I go to the gym every day, I have a lot of friend dates in the gym. So I'll go with, I go with a lot of people. If anybody ever wants to go to the gym, let, let me know. And, um, there are so many guys who have gorgeous aesthetic bodies who have no functional strength. That's right. Like we'll be doing like the basics squats, like five pound weights on shoulder and like cannot are struggling, like literally are like, but you look at their body and it's like, you know, six pack, big biceps, but like literally no functional shit. You're like, you couldn't carry a suitcase down. You know what I mean? Like you actually have no functional strength. And that is something that I didn't even like, shout out to my trainers because we did so much functional stuff at the beginning. Like that was, that was what I learned. So even the things I post are things that are like, I'm like, oh, this is like really taking my body to the new level. But, but I just didn't even, to me, muscles meant you are strong. That is like what I thought before I went to the gym. And I'm like, oh no, these boys got a lot of muscle and body. And, you know, 25 pounds is their max on a lot of things because they actually don't have functional strength. And I love that you mentioned that. The last thing I'll say before we wrap on this is outside of my own fitness journey and my health journey, um, because I'm I'm healthy, you know, and and the uh, but I had never lost the weight without doing it unhealthily. Um, and because I'm trying to find this balance between um, meds and how my body's reacting and stuff like that, it's like, how do I stay walking around Brooklyn and and, and, and ready for whatever pops off in Brooklyn and, and, and being pre- and being present and stuff like that? People have stages as well. So, right, like, like so Super DeRay probably won't last forever, <laughs> right? But, you know, you want him to maintain his health and fitness after he gets out of this, you know, soldier phase right and you know i've been i've been smaller than i am now i've been bigger than i am now i've been more cut than i am now my worry is that i pray that someone is not pursuing that out of a sense of self-worth like if i'm not if i don't hit this aesthetic i'm not worthy or i'm not beautiful but more importantly i pray that they center health right regardless right. of the aesthetic and, and and regardless of you know how this looks for the gram you just pray that they're centering uh, uh, their overall wellness and, and health, and that can look so many different ways, you know. And but I think you're you bring up something interesting that when we're not around everybody every day, and you see them on social media, you see people dealing with these. Like you see people who work out and get ready for shows, and then five mm-hmm. years later, it's like, oh, that was a phase. I did that. I did that bikini mm-hmm. show that day, and it was awesome. Um, and so I want to I want to allow people the uh opportunity to work out and 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 pursue various versions of themselves in the fullness of their own humanity but i just really pray that we're all centering just a sustainable health and wellness state of being as opposed to you know this 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 ephemeral and quite toxic uh aesthetic space 
I, I absolutely love that. And I wrote one time that I, I believe in vanity. I'm a Vanity Six fan. I love, <laughs> all, I love all things glamour. I think a good way to think about it is if your vanity is fueled by fantasy of self, it's healthy. Yes. If it's fueled by expectations of society, it needs to be investigated. So as long as it's it's filled with, oh, I made up this superhero, supermodel in my head, and I'm going to do things that don't compromise my my actual health to do it. You know, I'm in the trans community. We we I, I, I will be getting on the table. I will be getting Botox me up. Like, <laughs> I'm fighting it with my whole life. So I totally get the manipulation through beauty and glamour. Um, but I also think that it you sh- we should investigate who... Who, who, who did that voice come from, you know? Yes. So I love this. I never hear people, young men, talk about this. It's <laughs> a real thing. Back about it's this. a real thing. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. This week, we welcome Daria Dawson on the pod. She is a national political director at America Votes. During her career in democratic and progressive politics, Daria has served as the director of strategic engagement for then-Senator Kamala Harris's presidential campaign and the deputy national political director at the SEIU. There, she led the congressional lobbying efforts of the Fight for 15 campaign in its early stages. We talk about all things progressive politics, where we go, where we're going. Here we go. Daria, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited about this. So let's start with your journey to this work. What's your story? How did you get here? Did you always care about voting? Were you always an organizer? Did something happen that sort of pushed you into the space and made you commit your work to this? What's your story? Starting this conversation with that, I grew up in the South, North Florida, which is still the South. um, And I am the product of Two educators, um, Black educators in the South, one on a collegiate level, one um, a former elementary school teacher. Um, And my parents were raised to be involved in the process. And it is something that they instilled with me and my brother very early on. For them, voting was a way to have their voice heard. And my parents both being products of the greatest generation, being baby boomers. I would say too young to be engaged with the civil rights movement, but knowing the impact of it, both going to school during a time when integration was still pretty new. Both of my parents are actually like that first set of students to like integrate their high schools in the South. So that is something you know, they were living history. Um, So voting was something that they always did. Both of my parents, super voters since they were 18 years old. So teaching my brother and I how valuable that is. Um, And I was raised on the 
motto of if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything and speaking up for what is right. You know, I hear stories my mom was sharing me of like taking me to the voting booth on, you know, going to vote with me on her hip as a baby. So it was automatic (laughs) for us to do that. And I think just growing up, um, it just stuck with me. So I've been doing politics pretty much since I finished law school uh, back in 2000, dot, dot, dot. Um, Just not to share my age, but I've been doing this work for about 20 years. And my first job out of law school was in the state legislature in Florida, which was a different time, actually, when... It was a collegial process of Democrats and Republicans working together, got the bug for campaigns and, you know, travel all over the country, living on folks' couches to be an organizer, knock on doors, talk to people. So I'm of the old school of in order to engage a voter, engage a person in the process is to actually have a direct, direct conversation. So that has always just stuck with me and the work that I've done in addition to campaigns, labor unions, uh, work for two big labor unions in labor states. So being an organizer is just been instilled in me to just communicate with voters, teach voters, teach people about the process, because we're seeing in real time now that if people didn't care about your voice and voting, they wouldn't do so many things to restrict that. So let's talk about America Votes and and how you how 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 this work is situated in the landscape of work around voting. There's a lot of work that's been happening around mm-hmm. voting. Um, what do what are you all adding to the space? How would you define your work and help us think through it? Absolutely. So America Votes um, is the coordination hub of the progressive movement. It's a coalition table, and it was formed in 2003 to bring uh, progressive organizations, those organizations that had a vested interest in uh, political power, to coordinate and be aligned on the vested outcomes. And at the time, if you think back to 2003 going into the 2004 cycle, that was when it was about the re-election of George Bush and like not good for the progressive community, right? So a little thing happened, ironically, during that time also when it came to like knowing the data and having data being able to track who we engage with. So you had these organizations like the choice groups and the labor unions come together to really say, hey, let's do this in a coordinated way because we're going to be talking to the same voters. We don't have unlimited resources in doing that. So let's keep track of who's talking to who and also identify who those trusted messengers are, who are the best messengers to engage with the constituencies that we need to turn out. Fast forward, um, 15 years, maybe 16 years later, when you're looking at that time between 2016 to 2020 and the coalition in itself needing to identify, okay, the voters that we need to communicate with, of course, the young voters, people of color, we do not win without having constant communications with those voters. And how do we identify who are the best messengers to come to the table? So there was a tremendous growth between to, in the post-16 after the election of 25, sorry, 45, excuse me, 45 as president of new groups being formed and coming to the coalition, again, to be a part of that coordination effort. I became the political director in 2019, right before 
um, the 2020 cycle and right before the pandemic, uh, and really took it personally to identify the organizations that have the chops to talk to those communities, that the table of America votes must look like the electorate that we need to engage and educate and turn out for the 2020 election and beyond. So we focus on a couple of things when it comes to education, particularly voter education, and you're looking at what that means for the election administration laws in states and ensuring that voters are educated on the what's the ins and outs of actually going to vote. Um, and then mobilization turnout, not waiting until the end of the election cycle, not waiting until Labor Day of an election year to engage with voters. But think about it as a year-long process. And the thing that is so unique about America Votes is that we actually have infrastructure in key states, in the battleground states that you would imagine, which also includes Georgia, which also includes North Carolina, of setting up long-term infrastructure where our staff there is thinking about how do we win, what are the universes we need to connect with, um, and who are the best people, organizations, messengers to connect with those voters throughout the process. So it's education, it's accountability. Um, and then connecting with those voters to get them mobilized, to turn out, not just on election day, but educating them also of every opportunity to vote from the date that ballots drop. Because in a lot of states, ballots drop in September of an election year. So if you're waiting till September to talk or October to talk to a voter, chances are they may have already voted. So how do we engage and educate our, our contacts, constituents, voters, audiences, um, of all of the opportunities to vote from the date that ballots drops. And also keeping in mind that a lot of the organizations um, at our at the coalition have a lot of things that they are focused on, right? Whether it is building power, whether it is organizing members, whether it is abortion or climate change and policy implementations. and But the key to that, we believe, is ensuring that the progressive leaders are elected to office and focus on winning elections, but elections are only one tool in a toolbox. So America Votes has a takes that on for the community to think about how do we engage the constituencies and voters that we need to turn out to vote. We focus on that for our coalition. They trust us to do that. And then everyone can think about the other things that they need to do for the benefit of their organizations. What do we need to think about as we go to 2024? So, you know, I think I'm one of the people who Lord knows have been inundated with the like, you know, the last president was ripping up the mailboxes so people couldn't vote by mail. You know, some people are, some places are doing, you know, Pennsylvania just did automatic voter registration registration Mm -hmm. through DMV. And then you get the whole other spectrum, right? The people are, you know, you got to show up. Like at a certain period of time, if you don't do it then, right, and right. I know in Georgia, it was that um, they can now feed people in lines again because mm-hmm, that was a restriction mm-hmm. less. But but what what do we need to be paying attention to? What what are the questions we should be asking? Are there hot spots around the country we should be particularly paying attention to? Like what's the what? I appreciate you starting with Pennsylvania on that because I do think. Uh, in addition to keeping our eyes out on the restrictive policies that are coming into place, we also have to look at opportunities to expand, right? So like a consequence of having a Democratic governor in Pennsylvania 
was to allow for automatic voter registration through the DMV offices. So I think what we have to, to answer your question, I think one thing we need to keep in mind with 2024, if the trends continue from 18, 20, 22, that this is going to be a historically high turnout. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to win. Our people are going to turn out. So education has to be a part of it. I do think what's happened since the last administration, federal, um, 45, because um, I refuse to say names, is that people are more clued in and understand what's at stake. I do think we saw that with the Supreme Court, with the Dobbs decision, and essentially taking away a right that, you know, 50 years, they say, the, the, Supreme, the same Supreme Court, not the same court, but the court also said was a constitutional right. I do think people are very clued in as to elections do have consequences and that there has to be engagement at all levels. But what we are seeing that we need to keep our eyes on is, as I mentioned earlier, those election administration changes that happen on in the states, especially those states that have anti-democracy legislatures. We are living in a time when it is very clear that one party is anti-democracy. They believe in building power. They believe in sustaining power. But we're seeing actually that they can't really legislate for anything. So what are these anti-democracy legislatures doing to chip away, chip away at opportunities of young people, people of color to actually engage in the process? Perfect example in Wisconsin. Uh, we, I'm sorry, not necessarily in Wisconsin, but we definitely saw in the 23 Supreme Court race of young people turning out on those college campuses and like lines wrapped around buildings for hours and hours for a state Supreme Court race, right? Which is going to be essential to how um, abortion rights and also gerrymandering in Wisconsin. So what are some legislatures thinking about now? Let's not have precincts on college campuses. Who is that impacting? You know, let's, that's an easy way. We're making it too easy for these young people to get engaged. So let's move those precincts off of college campuses. It's little things like that that we need to keep our eyes on. You know, and we talk about Atlanta, um, excuse me, Georgia, when you say, you know, you couldn't feed people in lines. And um, as they're standing on, you couldn't give people water while they're standing in line. Voter suppression, right? Because you know, t- moving polling places at the last minute is an opportunity. And that has actually happened in some states also. Anytime, my opinion, anytime when someone is standing in line more than 30 minutes to vote is voter suppression. You know, I think we need to keep our eyes out when they have early voting, just 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Like we're going to do early voting, but we're going to have it Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. What are most people doing Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m.? We're going to have early voting, but we're not going to do it on Sundays. We're just going to have it on Saturdays. Well, you and I both know what happens on Sundays. Black people go to church and organize the souls to the polls. So it's those little things that we have to be aware of and have friends and allies that know um, the laws, I should say, excuse me, that know the laws and have those relationships with the county board of supervisors, with the secretaries of state's office, because those are the ones that actually set the parameters for um, the voting rules in the states and in the counties. Now, because you've been in this work so deep around voting, are there any misconceptions that you hear people sort of talk about or bring up that we should clear up? 
Like I, you know, I know some people, you know, I know people who are like, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want a driver's license because they're going to make me go to jury duty. Or you know, like, oh, my goodness. Um, but are there any things about the way people have sort of thought about voting or it doesn't apply to them or I don't know, like, are there, I have to imagine you've heard such a range of things. I think the biggest misconception, and I'm sure you've heard this too, is that my vote is not, my vote's not going to count. Right. And I think in a world where the Electoral College matters, people think that. But the Electoral College is determined by the votes within those states. So if you're in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, uh, I just said pretty much the states that is a pathway to 270. Right. But it's not the only path. 270. And I forgive me for like leaning into the federal side. But at the same time, I think a misconception on that point is that people only think about the presidential and not everything else. And if there's anything that we should learn from where we are right now with the Supreme Court is that every federal election is about the Supreme Court, right? It's not just a presidential. Yes, the president appoints those judges, but at the same time, the Senate confirms those judges. So what you saw happening for the past couple of years before 45 became president was Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans con- getting judges confirmed on the lower courts, right, with the help of the federal society. And now we're seeing like those justices in the lower courts are those that are being appointed, you know, higher. So, again, sticking with federal, that is I'm always going to lean into that. But if anything, we should learn, and I think the 16th election taught us this, was it's not just about the top of the ticket anymore. And the best quote that I've ever heard someone say was, yes, the presidential and who the executive office of the United States is important. But if you want to get the resources from the White House to your house, then you have to have the right people in the state house. And what, um, what can people do? What can listeners do who are like, you know what, we get it. Yes. How can I be involved? What would you say to them? I would say find ways to get involved in the issue that you care about, right? Um, you know, super exciting news recently about the climate core that this administration is rolling out, mimicking the Peace Corps of the JFK administration. Climate change is real. Like, don't let anyone else tell you differently. If that's your issue, then look at those organizations that are doing that type of work and sign up to volunteer. Go go to their website, get their talking points, communicate with your peers about that. If abortion or criminal justice or anything that is your issue that gravitates towards you, and I'm sorry, I can't believe I didn't say this, gun reform, if that is your thing, then look at look at ways to get more engaged with the organizations that are leading on those issues. It's not necessarily all about supporting an elected official. A lot of the groups at our table is not necessarily about, you know, we're going to elect this Democrat for this office. It's more so like we're going to elect the candidate that is best on our issues and the one that we can hold accountable and moving those policies um, towards a more for a more just society. So, yes, you can, of course, make a plan to go vote and make a plan for 10 people in your life to go vote. But at the same time, I think you have to get involved on the issues that move you and the issues that are essential for your communities to thrive. Uh, where can people go to stay stay in touch with your work or stay up to date on what's happening? Is there a site? Is, should they follow somebody? 
you know, America Votes, we do have a site, americavotes.org. Um, and on that site, we have all of the partners listed in our coalition and we have their organizations um, linked on our website. So you can always, you know, uh, get in touch through us that way um, or just track the di- how diverse the coalition in itself is. Um yeah, um, but I'm also on the site formerly known as Twitter. Um, if folks just want to just, you know, DM me, follow me, et cetera, welcome that. Welcome to, like, hear back as to, like, you know, figure out ways to get involved in the process. Because, again, it is about turning out to vote come whenever that special election, that general election, that primary election um, but it's also about the before and after when it comes to voting and being involved in the accountability, being involved um, in the education also. And the last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that has always stayed with you? You know, I'm going to take it back to, to my mom. You don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Positive the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Positive the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.